This program is brought to you by Emory University. Would you join me in prayer for a blessing for our food? God, we thank you for our journey this week in Holy Week for the, for the memory of what has just passed and the anticipation of what is to come. Be with us as we take this food, nourish our bodies, nourish our minds and our spirits with this new intellectual content that we will hear, this new offering by this great Lex guest speaker. Nourish us fully so that we remain in your service and work to bring your kingdom amongst us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome uh, to all of you. I add my welcome to Jan's. Um, it is my very distinct pleasure and honor to introduce to you our visiting dean's lecturer today, um, Dr. Sati Clark. I won't attempt the real long version, and you'll have to work on me with that for your first name. Um, I just want to say a couple of words of introduction, which will surely embarrass um, Sati. Um, Sati is uh, a native of South India. Am I right? Is it Kerala? Uh, do you know? Madras. Um, and did his original work there, his BA, MA, and BD in Chennai and in Bangalore at the United Theological College. Um, it's to, it's, I would say it's an act of providence, uh, uh, not an accident of history, that he then came and did his um, STM and his, at Yale Divinity School and then his PhD at the Harvard uh, University Divinity School. Um, Dr. Clark, you can tell already from that short version of his educational biography, is a cross-cultural traveler, uh, an Anglican priest from the Church of South India, um, and a couple of highlights of that cross-cultural traveling. Um, Sati has been a visiting lecturer at Harvard Divinity School um, uh, in world Christianity. He was for a long time a professor in the Department of Theology at the United Theological College in Bangalore. And um, through another turn of fate or grace, uh, he came back our way um, in 2005 to become the professor of theology, uh, um, culture, and, and mission uh, at Wesley Theological Seminary, where he currently holds the Bishop Sundo Kim Chair of World Christianity. Um, that's just some of the facts, um, but because of, I like to be a wonderful uh, advocate for theological learning, I've also brought some of Sati's books along. Sati is the author of Dalits and Christianity, Subaltern Religion and Liberation Theology in India, and Dalit theology is one of the threads that um, binds, I think, all of his journey. Um, he is the co-editor and author of four books, and that tells you a lot about the kind of commitments he's had, Dalit Theology in the 21st Century. Um, in the beginning was the word, group Bible studies on the Gospel of John, religious conversion in India, modes, motivations, and meanings. And um, most recently, and I'm excited when it comes out, um, the Oxford Handbook of Anglican Studies. 
Um, and the author of 40, at least 40 articles. So as I looked at the CV, I thought, oh, he's been everywhere. But the most fun part that I thought was Brazil, India, Indonesia, Liberia, South Korea, Sri Lanka, um, a guest lecture in all these places. So now I've surely embarrassed you, Sati. Um, and I'll just add a personal note to this. Um, I got to know Dr. Clark as a member on the House of Bishops Theology Committee um, the last few years as a colleague, um, a wonderful and prophetic um, constructive theologian. And as I teasingly say, along with me and Catherine Tanner, the left-wing pushing of this House of Bishops Theology Committee. So uh, I'm very, very um, uh, delighted to uh, uh, introduce um, Sati Clark as our guest lecturer in this Dean series today. Um, Sati, I don't have the title of your lecture in front of you, but you will introduce it yourself. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Clark. Thank you, friends, for coming out and spending this time with us together and giving me the honor of actually having you as part of the audience listen to what I'd like to say. Um, before that, um, I realize it's Holy Week and all of us actually stand uh, under the shadow of the cross um, for forgiveness. So I think first uh, uh, beseeching forgiveness for joy, for inflating my stature but more so uh, for my years that were tingling when I started enjoying these lies as well. Um, it's, it, it's a great privilege for me to be with you this afternoon. Um, I've really enjoyed um, the hospitality of your faculty, had a wonderful luncheon with uh, some of your PhD students, um, and, and really have been enriched by both their friendship and also their energy for service and scholarship both of which I see as connected in much of what you do at Emory. Uh, thanks to Dean Love for um, inviting me out here to be part of this Dean's Forum. And of course, my dear friend uh, Joy, for companionship, uh, for great friendship, uh, for mutual learning, but mostly for realizing that there's great joy in journeying together as co-disciples of Jesus Christ in different contexts, but with similar commitments. Thank you, Joy. Um, my lecture title is Mapping Trajectories of World Christianity, Post-Colonial Mission, Global Theologies, and Biblical Transversions. Um, the title itself will communicate to you that I'm what is called a systematic theologian, but constantly get out of that box to be a constructive theologian. What I thought would be useful today is to look at three avenues that claim to be part of the discourse of world Christianity. And I will lay these out before us and make some comments on each of this and the kinds of commitments and energy that emanate from each of these subfields, as it were. So in this lecture, after 
dissecting the in vogue yet ambiguous term world Christianity, I lay out three pathways that this field is carving for itself in the 21st century. First, I examine post-colonial mission. I look at this as an area of contestation. And world Christianity provides the contours for their exchange under the label post-colonial mission. My reading is that while there is one movement that falls backward to reclaim and reconfigure past objectives of mission impossible, there is another movement that lunges forward by engendering imagined humane worlds of possibilities. And both of these are housed under post-colonial mission within this larger landscape of world Christianity. Second, I explore the implications of our global context, and therefore world Christianity, for contemporary systematic theology. This is really my field, and I will look at what, in fact, um, uh, is happening within that field because of this discipline of world Christianity. Uh, again, my reading is that world Christianity is increasingly presenting itself as a resource rather than a context for our manifestly cosmopolitan way of living as Christians around the world. Third, I will draw upon some of the work that I've already done in Dalit biblical interpretations, and I will suggest that there is another arena that, in fact, world Christianity is housing, and that basically is people's biblical interpretation utilizing some of the resources of post-colonial studies. So these are basically the three areas that we will actually look at together. But before that, let me start by interrogating and transfiguring the discipline of world Christianity. All of us realize that world Christianity is moving from simply being a term in vogue within intercultural discourse to forging a disciplinary field in theological studies. Now, there's always this discussion whether, in fact, we were able to get more money with such a grandiose title, and then we have to sit and define the field. And so they get people like me and say, well, come out and tell us what this is. We're still struggling, but we have the money. Or whether this is an emerging field that is somewhat fragmented, and we don't have, as what happened within our usual discourse, one, and it's usually a white godfather, that has determined the blueprint for what the field is, and then you actually go out and say, this is the field, we know what it is, now we want people to work within it. We really are still struggling as to whether world Christianity belongs to one or the other. I think it's neither. I think it's between both of them. So it is a hybrid of sorts. But before actually saying why I myself am committed to this field of world Christianity and what this means for me, 
Let me place before you three other candidates that generally are out there that work under the same field or area. The first is contemporary Christianity. The term contemporary Christianity shifts the emphasis from analyzing the history of local and global Christianity, which is deeply entrenched in mission studies, to ongoing theological reflection of present-day movements using the skills and the resources of sociology and cultural studies. It thus curbs earlier preoccupations to unearth paradigmatic historical movements and moments of either numerical growth of, or of theological flourishing in Christianity. Often, such a search is thought to offer clues that can transform effective regional Christianities into a robust global Christianity. Such a turn toward contemporary or present day and a lot of ethnographic study and looking at forms of Christian practice must be celebrated as a form of self-knowledge and other knowing. However, there are two drawbacks with this title. First, contemporary Christianity becomes highly vulnerable to being interpreted in terms of what is popular in the Western world. And so in a strange way, contemporary is usually read as contemporaneous with Western practices, and so this becomes one of the risks that this bears. Second, contemporary is often conflated with modernity, increasingly sometimes with postmodernity. The prior commitment to a given universal worldview predetermines the contours and the core of Christianity. Contemporary Christianity conceals, in a sense, the need for all of us, including some of us who live and work and have the money and the energy and the leisure to study, it veils us from going out to look at every form that interprets itself according to its own self-representation. There's another title that has been used. It was in vogue 15 years ago. It's gradually actually moving out. Christianity in the non-Western world. I'm using this deliberately because some of world Christianity still doesn't use this title, but in fact carries itself as studying Christianity in the non-Western world. I must admit that compared to contemporary Christianity, at least this designation is honest. Since much of world Christianity overtly aims to turn the academic gaze away from one's own Western navel to the rest of the understudied world body. No doubt such a corrective may be needed. There is need to expand the corpus of Christianity by excavating less elaborated upon, less analyzed expressions of Christianity in the world. However, the field is set up to define the object of study often crudely as an other of the Western self, but also sometimes cleverly as the self 
that seeks to convert the West, which has now become the other. Both of these movements you will see within the study of Christianity in the non-Western world. Thus, this title seems to obscure the subjectivity of various independent symbolic constellations of Christian expression in the world. After all, local phenomena that represent Christian belief and practice are not merely reactive rejoinders to the religious expressions of either the West or the East. And I think on that, we've made a conceptual move beyond self and other. Even though, as I said, there is this tendency to look at salvation coming from the other for the Western self. A third term that is used a lot is post-Western Christianity. The term post-Western Christianity is another variant, I believe, of Christianity in the non-Western world. And this stems from a sense of realism, but also the need for Christian encouragement. There is a realism which realizes that the heart of Christianity beats more effectively and eagerly outside of its traditional Western sites of life and witness. There is encouragement because post-Western in no way implies post-Christian. Christianity indeed is alive and well, however it has migrated to more hospitable and more creative abodes in less traditional and less conspicuous locations around the world. One major problem with this title though is that it can be ahistorical, particularly in ignoring past colonial interventions and present power relationships in today's integrated global context. The term post-Western Christianity is dangerous then to both the West and also the rest. It lets the West conveniently wash its hands from the religious, economic, and political domination both in the past and in the present, which profoundly impacts the struggle for life in many parts of the world. Conversely, it misleads Christians outside the Western world into thinking that in a world that has increasingly become being globalized, they can live in justice, peace, and freedom without interrogating the non-religious dimensions of power that also reach out from the West to denigrate and debilitate their lives situated in different contexts. Finally, world Christianity. I believe that world Christianity overcomes some of the objections that we have leveled against the other titles. First, world Christianity advocates a study of Christianity from the perspectives that are engendered everywhere in the world. While there may be a preferential choice for understudied themes and regions in the world, the title does not exclude the West. As I reimagine this term, it has to cease from its preoccupation with either Africa or Asia or Latin America. We have to give ourselves up to the common scrutiny of study by the whole community of Christians 
everywhere. So, in world Christianity, it's not just that you join me or I join you and we go out and look at the Dalits and see what's going on with the ex-untouchables in India and what we can learn from them. It is working with a Dalit or an African to actually study what happens within white communities in this country. That is world Christianity. All of us become equally vulnerable to be studied because of the fact that we live for each other in a world of self-giving and therefore of mutual study of each other. Second, the term world Christianity refuses to set up the universe of inquiry by postulating an other as though difference and dissimilarity from the West or the East characterize Christianity in the non-Western or the non-Eastern world. We need to actually realize that in every self, one also have fragments of the other, and in every other, you basically have glimpses of the self. Unless we can actually work within this, I think it will be very difficult to truly enter into this field of world Christianity. And finally, the term world Christianity allows for a critical investigation into aspects of power relationships, both past and present, which also includes critical discourse between all communities that claim to be Christian. It is because of this need for common accountability of all communities in a self-critical and other-related unity that I prefer the term world Christianity in the singular rather than world Christianities in the plural, quite aware that there are a plurality of forms and expressions that make up this field of study. It holds us together within a common oikos, within a common home. And this is my proposal for looking at world Christianity as a title that will be, I think, both a productive but also an energizing area of mutual discourse. As an emerging area of study in the West, it is important that we continuously interrogate and challenge the pretentiousness implied in the term world Christianity. So this is a form of a caveat. Mirroring the unrealistic self-assuredness of modernity, such a grandiose term appears to promote the conviction that world Christianity is a singular entity characterized by an identifiable essence which can be comprehended in its entirety. Conscious of this bent, the field of world Christianity needs to deliberately embrace the distinctive messiness of the lived forms of Christianity that take root, sprout shoots, and bear fruits in historical contexts of diverse people and disparate places in the various regions of our common home, the earth. Moreover, world Christianity is an interconnected community that is being held together by mutual service to each other and the world as modeled 
by our Lord Jesus Christ. In this sense, world Christianity is an alternative to the community envisaged by economic and cultural globalization. It primarily is a counterfactual of what is being sold to us as a fact, and that is the global world of a flat earth with one market in which, in fact, we can extract from each other. And I'm suggesting that world Christianity, in that sense, sets up a form of a community that, indeed, is an alternative to this. Lam and Sane makes an interesting distinction between global Christianity and world Christianity. Global Christianity is fueled by the mechanism and mindset of expansion. On the one hand, it is dependent on the technologies and the economic power of the West and its allies, wherever they may be. In contrast, world Christianity is a movement that is fueled by the local embrace of the Christian gospel in indigenous cultural forms in every region of the world, as much in Atlanta and Manhattan as much as Accra or Kampala, or for that matter, New Delhi or Karunguli, the village in which I worked for three years. Sani points to the indigenous, organic, and plural character of this phenomenon that he says is world Christianity. Let me quote. World Christianity is not one thing, but a variety of indigenous responses through more or less local idioms, but in any case without necessarily the European Enlightenment frame. End of quote. Now I wish to place before you these field, three subfields, as it were. We look at them, uh, and I've just chosen uh, three. Uh, you'll find that a lot of, of the disciplines that you work in work within these three fields. Um, if, if, if one was to look at them uh, um, together, one would say that one of the areas that you can see has infiltrated all three is history and literature. You'll see that they, in fact, have, have, have pervaded all three of these fields. World Christianity and post-colonial mission. I won't even try to define post-colonial. Um, but uh, maybe, you know, through our questions, and, and, and uh, so I've just, I've just taken this um, uh, as, as generic, generic as possible, particularly keeping in mind that all sorts of people seem to claim this, and that's, uh, you know, and, and even though the others uh, swear that they were the ones that actually are modernist, they've already labeled them, they somehow they feel post-colonial. And you'll see this basically in what is happening with world Christianity and post-colonial mission. World Christianity reiterates that because mission is at the heart of God's inner life and the marrow of God's interrelationship with creation, it is an essential part of Christian identity. Thus, talk of a termination of or moratorium on Christian mission because of systemic and severe harm caused by its deliberate and unwitting collaboration with the forces of colonization is thought now within this discourse 
of post-colonial mission to be both unhelpful to human welfare and uncharacteristic of Christianity. Unhelpful to human welfare. Suspending mission is unhelpful to the transformative objectives of human collectives. Ruptures and wounds caused by misdirected Christian mission cannot be repaired by terminating all mission activity. Mission inaction is an irresponsible cop-out and a form of escapism. The least one can do in such a situation is to generate currents that resist and overcome destructive forces that survive under the guise of mission. Christians will have to take on the responsibility through a process of self-criticism and self-correction to evolve models of Christian mission that can bring about the fullness of life that it claims to have received from God. And I think what has happened is very interesting. As you know, uh, most of us who work in history and religion, uh, we know that you know, uh, the, the, from the 40s and 50s, 50s really, the, the, the Missio Dei and the way in which this has reclaimed discourse on the mission of God and therefore taking away the onus on our own agency for mission that tended then to be feeders of forms of colonial mission. So there's this rethinking of how we understand what happens with the mission. And strangely, this call to re-embrace missional thinking comes from those who were missionized. In fact, they're appalled when liberals like me go out and tell them, it seems like you're really too energetic about mission. Why don't we just rest a bit, take a Buddhist stance for a while, and let's actually reflect on what's going on. And they tell us, just when we are all keyed up to be about what is important for us, and to undo the effects of what unfortunately now is thought of as Christian presence, you are telling us, not to be present, not to be active. And so much of the voice, even though it came, for example, from different documents of the International Missionary Council, it came from uh, CWME, it came from the World Council, what is happening is the voice that is loudest really is coming from those who were missionized, and those who missionized them because they're tired and they're now in these armchairs, suddenly realize that, no, we should not have really done that. Maybe this is something that we should relax a bit on. There's too much energy in this. And they actually are saying, no, we will get about the task of mission. And this basically is for the welfare of all. In fact, I had to relearn this basically working with Dalit communities. When I worked with Dalit communities, I basically worked with them with a notion of liberation theology, and never thought that when they took over and thought about what is most important, they were wanting actually to convert all their Hindus to be Christians. So I said, why is this? And they said, no, Ayya, which is basically what they will say for a pastor, if we all come into this egalitarian community, truly the kingdom has its possibility on earth. If they don't, because they have all the power and they still have a hierarchical structure, we will have to continue to think about 
the kingdom as that which would be gifted to us after death. And so in a sense, I repented for some of what I thought was this call for mission and was able then to work with issues of religious conversion and why it is important as a proclamation of the gospel to the Dalit communities in India. But mission closure or moratorium is also out of character with Christianity. And this is something that's happened also in the shift of what goes on in theologies of religion. We've suddenly realized that even pluralism is not able to valorize and give authenticity for particularity. And what we're learning now is this vocal acceptance that the character of Christianity is to be part of the Missio Dei. It's part and parcel of the calling to embrace the God who itself is a spirit of mission. Christianity clearly originates in the mission of God in Jesus Christ, one that was willing to pitch God's tent among us, in enveloping and transforming human beings through this visitation, God moves the reign of God close at hand to the whole world and to every human being. The synergy of love, peace, and justice, and hope through the power of the Holy Spirit permeates the whole world. Christianity is all about God's mission of entanglement with God's world for the sake of its transformation in order to live an abundant life which is rooted in joyous knowledge of God and manifested in loving relationship among all human beings. If this is the essence of the gospel that is rooted in the Missio Dei, Christianity in its character is mission. So what I'm saying is that in the field of world Christianity, this is not simply a top-down way of lifting up something that we believe is at the heart of Christian identity, presence, proclamation, and witness. It becomes part of what the missionized field is important for gifting to the world, even as they give themselves to be part of this movement of the triune one. In this new embrace of Christian mission, there appears to be two models, both claiming to be post-colonial. I suggest that one movement of post-colonial mission falls backward to reclaim and reconfigure past objectives of mission impossible. What is this mission impossible? The mission that the conversion of the whole world under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this is something that those who work with one form of post-colonialism still claim drives them. It does this by locating mission energy that is gushing outward from Africa, Latin America, and Asia to first enliven and then engulf reticent post-Christian regions of the world. This wing of post-colonial mission may be referred to as evangelization of the world without colonization. 
it consoles Christians in the West and valorizes Christians in the non-Western world. Thus, the dream of Christianizing the whole world has not fizzled out. It has merely moved locations, they say. Christianity's post-colonial mission future lies in trimming colonial attitudes, means, and methods from the process of world evangelization. And, instance, and instances of such resurgence coming from across Africa, parts of Asia, and Latin America are provided as examples that this form of post-colonial mission that is cut itself away from colonial structures of power and methods of operation is still alive in the world. Uh, Peter Jenkins uh, points to this expansion outside the West. I'm sure you are familiar with his work, but let me just use one quotation that brings this uh, point home, and I quote, in 1800, perhaps 1% of Protestant Christians lived outside Europe and North America. By 1900, a century later, that number had risen to 10%. And this proved enough of a critical mass to support further expansion. Today, the figure stands around two-thirds of all Protestants. End of quote. So this whole impetus of expansion without colonization, evangelizing as a possibility for the whole world without any form of coercion is something that is called post-colonial mission. Now, it's also important that if you read this discourse, uh, two anti-heroes emerge in this robust post-colonial growth of Christianity in the world. On the one hand, Islam, which is thought of as a competition to the post-colonial advances of Christianity, is projected as Christianity's antithesis. Post-colonial Christian mission is inscribed in contrast to a more colonial version of Islamic mission. Thus, world Christianity as post-colonial mission movement is interpreted to be more indigenous, flexible, dynamic, and native culture honoring. Whereas, contrary to this, Islam is thought of basically to be rigid, untranslatable, and that which cannot be incarnated among people to embrace their culture and therefore their personhood. So you have this contrast that goes on within this form of post-colonial mission. On the other hand, the other anti-hero is secularization, which has eroded religious, religiously fertile ground in the West and is also gradually taking over many pockets of the world through a form of globalization of culture and globalization of value. Post-colonial mission of this stripe 
appears to work within a schema that pits the mission of secularism from the global north, which manifests traces of triumphant colonialism, against Christian mission from the global south, which exhibits traces of authentic post-coloniality. There is another wing of post-colonial mission that lounges forward into the world by forging solidarity with common humanity in its search for life for all before death. The growth of Christianity is not the main objective of mission, passion, and entanglement. Rather, the aim of such post-colonial mission is cultivation, rather than colonization, of human dignity, social justice, world peace, and ecological plenitude. This wing of post-colonial mission, even if in a simplistic way, may be referred to as humanization of the world without colonization. And that's why, in a sense, this is also post-colonial mission. Post-colonial mission in this camp associates colonialism with misrepresenting and overcoming the religion and the culture of native communities, and therefore dehumanizing them as well. Thus, cultural and religious colonization involves overtaking the soul of the other through Christianization. That's what they're against. Humanization without Christianization, with a special focus on the poor and the marginalized, is an expression of post-colonial mission in a religious plural world that is upheld by this particular stripe of post-colonial mission. The activities of such post-colonial mission also attempts to reverse what were taken to be the emphases of colonial mission interventions. Thus, this strand of post-colonial mission foregrounds bodies rather than souls, focuses on social structures rather than individuals, and respects religion along with culture as it moves forward in similar ways to be entangled with God's world for the sake of the Missio Dei. I believe that there are two underworked aspects that can be brought together that may be an intermediary space that can bring both movements together. And I think that these two aspects that we should talk about within both these movements is post-colonial mission and macroeconomics and microeconomics. Um, it's absolutely amazing to me that most of this mission actually is done by smaller agencies. Very few of them are drawing from the tremendous work that's being done on African poverty and Asian poverty and Latin American poverty in most of our schools. I mean, as all of you know, even if you're in theological school and you're traveling anywhere, there are certain books you will see in everybody's hand. I don't know, Bottom Billion is one of those. Paul Coulier, um, which basically talks about poverty traps and ways in which we can work around. Now, I just brought it out of shame because everybody actually I was meeting was asking me, so what do you think about Bottom Billion? Because most of the time as Christians and mission-based we say, oh, Africa, we have a lot of issues that come out from Africa. We sh we're, we're looking at this. This is what is involved post-colonial mission. And say, wow, have you read Paul Collier? Because he talks all about Africa in terms of what the Bottom Billions are. 
and we really don't know we also know that both of these groups do have dirty hands and in the best sense actually messy hands and feet that are actually soaking with the mud of people it's amazing when you actually work with these groups that both what we think of as the naive evangelists and their great love for healing of the body and caring of family economics is tremendous at local levels you also see your ngo worker who's on fire for humanity's sake but is driven by this idea of somehow there is a mission but will never touch religion at all you'll also see that they deal with issues of how do you actually work with the land but no one has got involved with what we can do as a discourse of world christianity and look at macro levels and where in fact we can work together to shape our world so that all communities can live with justice and with human dignity now um, it's amazing you know uh, uh, even even someone like lamin sane who's not known to work with issues of poverty um, in 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 response to a question in one of his books and, and i'll read you this uh, the question is in any case you feel that christianity has a role to play in the strengthening of public life and institutions don't you his answer yes i do especially christianity as the preferential option for the poor you'd never think of his work as actually thinking that there's a very important part of what we can do together and so i think the issue of what we do with economics becomes really important within the discourse on world christian of course the second and i will just briefly actually lay it uh, before you because uh, i realize that um, i'm running out of time and i've just got through one third so the second is basically post colonial mission and a theology of religions i'm uh, absolutely amazed at how um, we haven't really started having a serious dialogue on the theology of religions um, in a sense this is what really divides both camps um I, i'm increasingly uh, 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 you know influenced by the work of someone called mark heim um uh, and 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 the other person of course is is because joy is my friend you'll have to read moltmann right but but both of them actually bring together a trinitarian way in which you can understand lifting up the gospel of jesus christ as a particularity and still feeling assured that the other persons of the trinity will take care of those who are beyond jesus christ this book basically the talks about salvations in the plural religious ends in the plural the capaciousness the plethora the fullness the spaciousness of god is that we can say that yes salvation is available only in jesus christ when we mean salvation to be reconciliation and yet we could say the largeness and the spaciousness of the trinity is able to take care of religious ends that necessarily do not end with salvation that is guaranteed in jesus christ and i think there's a lot of middle ground for conversation on what this means and how we can actually and yet in post colonial mission a theology of religions is addressed only secondarily 
The second uh, subfield is world Christianity and global theologies. How does theologies, how is theologies influenced by much of what happens by world Christianity? I want to suggest, and I will you know, uh, 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 try and make this as, as, as clear as possible by using three particular ways in which we all work with theology and seeing how world Christianity can be enriched if it takes these three ways of working with theology seriously. And the three ways that I place before you is world Christianity needs to bring together embedded theology, collaborative theology, and deliberative theology. All three of these allow for a way in which world Christianity can be enriched, or the other way around, how systematic theology can be enriched by world Christianity. Embedded theology. Excavating and conserving native and naive thinking. Um, when we say native, everybody actually looks towards me. So I'm talking about native and naive as being instrumental in all of our communities. All of us who teach systematics, but I'm sure those of you who teach Bible as well, we struggle with how to move students with but beyond their native and naive thinking. With and beyond. Most of us made the mistake early in our career to think we can move them beyond that. But what happened is for the exam paper, they wrote beyond and then slipped back into their own native categories of what made sense to them theologically. And this is usually talked about basically as the first order of theology. And this, I think, ought to be aided by numerous ethnographic studies of what happens and how people think. The thinking of communities in terms of their native categories becomes really important. And of course, we talked about this yesterday with the group. Um, it, it's always the hope that this native and naive thinking will escape the interpretive categories of the ethnographer herself or himself. But this is basically what one hopes. This is a kind of first order theology that we need to do. And I think increasingly what will have to happen is what we're talking about as contextual or local theologies need to be in dialogue with what happens with all institutions that teach theology. So this embedded theology is located and therefore, first of all, needs to be excavated, lifted up, brought within academic discourse, brought to actually mutual exchange of what happens. It's different configurations of God or goddesses or gods, different configurations of what the world is, different configurations of what the human beings, particularly as related to the cosmos or as not related to the cosmos and how they actually hold together. All of these are part of what happens within these communities. But the other and the next step is almost a second order theology. And that is collaborative theology. Reflective thinking upon local thinkings. It's not just 
thinking is thinking upon thinking and all of us know that this is a second order and what i'm saying is reflective thinking upon local thinkings is also part of what actually world christianity provides as a space for what happens with our mutual sharing and working together and i'll tell you this is an excellent case in point i found a lot of this world christianity is divorced from what i think is world christianity is arising from the us and i know from 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 britain for example if you look at the emerging church movement if you look at the fresh expressions of christianity in britain and you look at eclectic forms of christianity in africa and asia which usually actually is covered over as though this is some pure form of the christian gospel is what is portrayed if you hold all of them together that will lead to thinking about local thinkings and what this does together to reconfigure what happens within our own theology a third and i think this is really the third order the meta task which is desperately needed of systematics if we take world christianity seriously and that is what i said deliberative theology fundamental tinkering with thinking upon local thinkings that is changing the structure of how we worked at it i was actually i i'm a convert you know when i went out to study the dalit communities i went out basically with a good protestant way of thinking about it bible in hand proclamation in mouth i thought this will do it suddenly i realized that the modalities by which i was able to reflect was not that modalities they were differently literate they were oral communities and i noticed that much of their reflexivity on thinking about god was done with the drum you know what happened among dalit communities is for those of you who know a, a bit of hinduism see hinduism basically thought that the word is so pure that in fact the untouchables women as well and the lowest caste could not even listen to the vedas definitely not untouchable they're not allowed close to the temple at all now we would have thought in our good kind of lefty kind of way that all the dalits should have galvanized and said no we want the word they basically said you can take your word and you know what you can keep it okay we will utilize the instrument that we have which is the drum and the drum actually is that which invokes god takes their sorrow and puts that back into god and constantly mediates presence hope encouragement strength and power to these communities what this does for us straight away in a third order reflection because of world christianity is to say that multimodality of reflexivity at least on god has to actually move beyond texts words so i've always thought of this as theology on the one hand theographia theophonia on the other hand unless we actually make space for modalities of thinking so structurally tinkering with what happens in theology i don't think in fact we can service or even pick up the insights of what happens within these local communities this i believe 
is one of the ways in which world Christianity is impacting what happens within my own field in terms of systematic theology. The third is this interpretation of Bible. Um, if there is one thing that we can be sure of, and it's very difficult for the Western world to digest this, but if there's one thing that we can actually be sure of, it is that the Bible is at the center of the new face of Christianity in the world. It has become the heart of world Christianity. It may not be the basis of how different people interpret who we are, but it has moved beyond our criticism that we made for 25 years that this was a colonial object. You know, they gave us the Bible and said, let us pray. We closed our eyes and they took the lands off. The thing that they've kept, they've even sold their lands, unfortunately, to multinational corporations. But they've kept their Bible. And this is not only in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. You work with the emerging church, of course, they won't carry a Bible like you and I. It's all, you know, on one of their contraptions. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. And so I realized that in class, I always thought, you know, if I have the Bible, I will quote, I see no Bibles, and I quote something. They say, no, uh, Dr. Clark, um, this was a wrong verse and, and wrong chapter. Uh, fortunately, I haven't got wrong books. That we work with the Bible very seriously at home. So, but clearly what is happening is the resurgence of the Bible. It's not as a colonial object. And we've done enough, actually, to, to, to uh, disenchant people, particularly in the West. Oh, you've done so much. Now. But to look at what and how it is alive within local communities across the world, including local communities of the West, is something that we have to actually take very seriously. So the Bible is that priceless necklace of pearls that still adorns many of our local communities. And even making references to actually taking this away is not acceptable with the local communities. Now, keep in mind that this also has to do with the notion of scripture that they bring with them with other religious traditions, whether it's the Vedas, which was so pure that you couldn't even hear it, and therefore, once you have the Bible, it has come close. It's usually thought of as that particular idol that can travel with you. That particular idol, not like the other idols, but the idol that can talk, can call you to account, can encourage you, and that which actually can be circulated in community. So this is something that we're seeing is, is very clear within the particular community. Um, it, 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 of course, interpretation of Bible within local communities is also extremely complex. There's this easy way in which everyone thinks that you know, they're the fundamentalists. Um, those of us who work with local communities and see how they read the Bible, there's an amazing creativity that is utilized within the uh, process. But let me leave, from the field of world Christianity, let me leave with you three sensibilities by which the Bible is read. Um, and, you know, if I had it up on screen, I, I actually split it up. It's sense abilities. Abilities using what I, 
the usual way in which you sense. And the sense uh, abilities that I actually believe that is being utilized, and this really comes from my work with Dalit communities, is they have not given up on a canon sense, they bring in a common sense, and they're very interested in convivial sense. Conviviality and that sensibility and the reading of a public book is always to actually bring life to the community. Canon sense. I always think of this, when I think of canon sense with Dalit communities, I think of this basically as the third eye of biblical interpretation. I won't get into transversion, um, you know, that will take me five minutes to explain what it is, but uh, let's just use biblical interpretation. It's almost the third eye of uh, biblical interpretation. What, what, what I mean third eye, actually the third eye is very interesting. You have the long tradition of the third eye in, in, in Indian studies um, that's really very important. Um, C.S. Song talks about third eye theology coming out of the Asian context. But um, one of the things that they usually miss is something that actually we learn from, from, from Shiva's third eye. Uh, so the third eye actually has a twofold uh, purpose. One, it is able to envision the whole. You know what in Hinduism is also darshana, envisionment. Um, the whole actually comes together. And so the canon sense that is brought is this ability through this to actually bring together a map of all things. Okay. But there's a second function of the third eye, and that is Shiva's destructive eye. A destructive eye. One is the inner eye of darshana or envisionment, and the other is an outward eye. When you see, for example, the red mark um, is, is usually thought of as Shiva's eye. And the outward eye of destruction is so that all things that are counter to the mapping of God's vision is destroyed. It's very interesting. In fact, our are, are, even the English language has two different ways of looking at canon. Right? One is, uh, so uh, do you accept the Bible as canon? And all of us think of this as, as basically that which is the orthodox uh, 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 you know, yardstick of all things. But of course, most of, uh, we've forgotten it because we live in, 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 in a modern era. But the old days, actually, they still have these canons, which is to blow up things. You know? So in one sense, what they're bringing back is actually this third eye of scripture. Now it's very interesting, what they want is basically to allow all people to be brought under the canon so that everything that in fact is not part of the universal is destroyed. And that's why I think, at least I can speak for Indian communities, they will never let historical critical methods so easily take the Bible away from us. Because it is that which relativizes all human maps. And human maps also involve social maps, textual maps. And when you have orality as a mode, you'll find that they can use this creatively so that they can set up what is envisionment for them of all, but also hold everybody accountable to the same. If they're not, there is a destructive element that comes through within scripture. But the second, of course, is, is common sense. Now, um, this has a long history. Um, 
in, in, in Western discourse, particularly after Gramsci, who basically thought as common sense as that which is actually peddled to all of us, um, to, to mold us in such a way that actually we are part of the, the knowledge production of the state or, or uh, whoever else. And so Gramsci will also talk about good sense. But I think common for us lifts up basically where it comes from, how it is utilized in interpretation of scripture, and what happens in this process is to constantly work out a way in which the scripture is utilized in creative ways, almost if we use the third eye, I'd like to use the metaphor of the middle year of biblical transversion. Twists are produced here. It's between the left and the right year. Not in, you know, give me the, the creativity of a contextual theologian. I'm talking about not the middle year in terms of your, you know, going back to your class um, in terms of where it lies, but the middle year as that distance in which, which can basically take from partial hearing of right and left in order to configure something that is different and new. And a lot of what happens within these communities have to do with this. Now, I, you know, I, I gave an example when I was talking um, with, with, with a group of your faculty. Um, this is with Dalit communities, it happens all the time. But I was struck by how this happens even in, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, as, as part of, of my uh, uh, ministry, I'm an associate priest in an Episcopal church that works a lot with homeless communities. Um, so I regularly preach in that community, but I also lead a Bible study for them. Um, uh, once, if not twice a month, I actually work with about 15 or 20 of them. And this is where I saw this ability of bringing common sense to reconstitute what, in fact, Scripture ought to say. So we're sitting in Bible study, and we were looking at 1 Timothy 6, and this, uh, uh, this verse that comes through, uh, for, the, uh, for the love of money is the root of all evil. So this came up. Of course, some of them said, yes, this is just wonderful. Look at things around us. One of uh, my, my, my uh, Bible study members said, um, that may be true, um, but we haven't seen enough money to love it. <laughs> so he said, and he did it really beautifully. This is basically what happens with common sense construction of scripture. He said, let me start with my life story. And he said, all the sin that he was rooted in and he was led to, which involved, for example, arrests and working with, uh, you know, getting caught for things, he said basically comes not at all from the love of money, but from the lack of money. So he said, actually, I believe the scripture, someone may have got it wrong. One word. For the lack of money is the root of all evil. And I thought, this is an amazing way in which suddenly you realize that even scripture was written to people that were thought of as simply being lovers and never talked about people that lack and all that they wanted is just to have sufficiency. I mean, if they get sufficiency, they may, not, may love it actually, that's the other thing. But just to understand what happens within this form of what we're saying is common sense reading of text. And the third is uh, the convivial sense. And this is what we can say is uh, the metaphor of me is really the hands and feet of biblical interpretation. Um, it has to work for them. 
it has to be plugged into what happens in their community. It has to be grounded in what happens in the community. And you'll find a lot of these communities and their reading is part of asking for a convivial sense. Let me just end with um, a, a Dalit uh, woman, Monica Melanthan, who writes, uh, she's a biblical scholar, and, and she makes a point that I think is really important. She says, and I quote, the principal objective of reading the Bible among Dalit communities, therefore, is not to interpret the Bible alone, but to interpret life as well with the help of the Bible. The sense that in fact comes through is a convivial sense. And therefore, we have these three different subfields, all that can be productive and that are utilized in this overall field of world Christianity. I invite you to the joy of working within any of these. I think that this really is part of what will increasingly be a counter to globalized communities where people do not have the choice to work within these fields to bring their own agency in to what happens in their lives. Thank you very much. Asante has got plenty of time for questions and answers, uh, or for questions, and maybe give some answers, or questions back. So, um, but I know some of you have class, um, um, and I'm going to uh, help Fatih out if you will fielding questions. If you have a question, um, just introduce yourself, I'd say. And I don't know if the mic is the mic. The other mic is maybe the mic, come yes. up to the mic if you're um, feeling so inclined. So. Um, And you can also give the answers, and I'll yeah. try to get the questions. Snow is asking, I've been struck at how many people were involved in humanitarian work, the, the sort of the, are, are driven by not simply religious motivation, but evangelical religious motivation. Um, and so I'm wondering if the two things, you know, sort of, making the world Christian, or for Christ, and making the world humane are, are as exclusive as we tend to think, theoretically, and on the ground, there's a lot more intermingling of the two. Um, and and, and what, what does that mean to the model? Um, I, you're absolutely right, Arun, and that's why I actually am opening up space in which I think they can be very productive together. Um, I, I, you know, I set up categories that generally, as you know, uh, most of us who work with, with teaching are really pedagogical devices. I mean, I could have gone on, like most of us would do in our books, three pages of warrants about how they don't really hold together, and these are fluid categories, and one actually boundary slips into the other, and that's the joy of life. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I've worked with, with, with both communities. I found that in my own life and work, uh, if, I, if, if I don't have one community with me as part of the journey, there's something that's missed. Uh, uh, tremendous opportunities. And yet I know uh, there, there are tremendous differences. There's, there's great internal blood pressure rising when they're at the same table. Um, this whole idea, uh, the language is very different. Um, um, I mean, is this cues that we will say one will basically be salvation, um, the other will be abundant life. Um, both of which are usually left undefined, which could include the other. 
Um, again, just to look at some of what happens, I think in one, um, uh, the body is very heavy and the soul is light enough to fly away from reflection. The other, the soul is extremely weighty and uh, the body is calmed only to reach the soul. So there's a lot of the ways in which we configure. Uh, I think that some of our new discourses that look at persona, personhood, looking at integral ways in which we can look at things, are already coming in. Uh, you're absolutely right. The evangelical world is involved much more sometimes than those who talk a lot about humanization in terms of being there for the sake of Jesus Christ, um, shoulder to shoulder working with people. Um, about two and a half years ago when we had this uh, tragedy in, in Kandamal where 54 uh, Dalits and Adivasis were killed by the Hindu right um, and they were asked basically uh, to recant their faith and they were standing up. It was remarkable to see how we utilized each other's spaces. I went on behalf of the World Council of Churches, but most of our work basically was we were able to do because of Pentecostals, because evangelists would not actually leave their people. And we had one of the most remarkable stories is we go into this village and uh, we see these people, been, their houses have been burnt, they're all actually somewhere. And then there was a, a young man and, and, and a young woman, and in India it's very rare, but they were actually hugging each other behind a tree. When we came, both of them came running out, and they said, we are on our honeymoon, but I'm the evangelist, and I cannot leave my people. So the, the remarkable witness of, of all sorts that work within this, and I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of progression. Um, uh, and also because we're realizing that, that, that those that I caricatured basically as, as uh, uh, evangelization without uh, uh, colon, uh, uh, colonialism, um, they're people that in fact work a lot with uh, issues of, uh, of humanity, you know. And, and vice versa, I know that many of us, I mean, it's, it's, again, when you're in the field, you'll see, you know, people that scream at, at these uh, uh, seminars about, you know, the post-colonial nature of Christianity itself, you catch them actually with a group that, in fact, is struggling, and the only thing they can offer is hope through prayer. Their prayers actually almost escapes the camp in which we put them. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's a lot of ways in which uh, we can work at this. And one really hopes that this larger, uh, uh, the contours of the field will bring a, us uh, closer together. To, to understand that these are really distinct callings and, and how do we criticize each other together, uh, but also encourage each other. Uh, what kind of research projects, because I, this isn't something that one person can do, what kind of things need to happen? And particularly from a North American context, but I mean, would it be, for instance, comparative study of Bible interpretation, not simply Dalit, but let's say also other parts of Asia and Africa? I mean, are, are those the kinds of projects or ethnographic projects that you would imagine? Is it sort of the combination of people doing alongside people who are doing sort of close studies? I'm just curious, how, how would you imagine that that goes forward? I have, okay, uh, thank you for making me king. Um, um, I, for me, I mean, again, I can just bring my passion, and, and I don't know about seeing it in the future, but I can just bring my... I think what I would love to do is, is, is um, uh, 
two things, and both of which is my passion. One is actually to consistently work with, with um, um, community-based Bible studies among the poor. Um, I think that there's a lot of wisdom there, um, um, which uh, you know, Gerald West calls from the Academy of the Poor, um, that in fact can instruct us about living and um, uh, prevent us from worshipping mammon rather than God. Um, I think that, that you know, most of the criticism we have is, is from people like us, you know, to work and say, this is mammon, this is God, why didn't you do... I think that, in fact, uh, people's interpretation of, of uh, the word from God that comes from Scripture, um, I think that, that I would love to have uh, cross-cultural projects of, of, of how the Bible is read. And it's also because, Jonathan, I, I think this, this easy caricature that somehow because... Um, the, the agenda of some people within the West is to portray a lot of, of our peoples as, as fundamentalists in a very Western sense. You know, not even realizing that you know, we're talking about how can actually people of the oral tradition be fundamentalists? And it must be, you must, okay, that you know, the fundamentalism is in terms of some strange way, in terms of utilizing the Bible and not letting anybody you know, uh, touch it with their feet or you know, that. But, and so I think that that really is a future of, uh, of engendering um, a tremendous wisdom. But the second is, and again, this is my theology hat, I would love uh, to make a comparative of actually what is God in these communities. Um, again, there's just so many different uh, correlates in which you can work at it, you know, where, um, um, where, where Muslims live close by. And to see whether, which is some of the interests that I really have, how... Uh, even our conceptions of the self in some way bespeak of the other. And so whether some of our gods basically take on the likeness of other gods that surround us, and in which ways, and how are they informed, what are the resources that we draw on, uh, why. Uh, now, it's, 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 uh, I'd like to do that not just in, in many regions, but I, you know, the intrigue of this country and its politics and where people are in terms of how we can actually work with, with, with the Bible. Mission, I mean, I'm, I'm just totally amazed uh, in this country that often it's the same people that actually want to go out and do mission somewhere in every other part of the world, it's the same people that will actually not embrace the mission of receiving people in their own country. And so they're actually working with immigration issues, how to stop them, bring about. Now, there's, there's something of a disconnect. So what is, is, is the God that actually we are doing mission on behalf? So there's a lot of, of, of disjunctive elements. And, and, and they may be complementary, but it's, I'd love to actually work and I think that the field of systematics, if it is rooted in these forms of what happens in world Christianity, we will actually have resources uh, that, that will be abundant you know, and, and extremely rich. I'm curious, we're trying to sort of make crystal ball again for world Christianity as a field. It sounds like in some ways it's described as we talk together. It, it becomes more of a confessional um, approach. In the sense, I think that we're still combating world Christianity, for instance, the section of the American Academy of Religion has its own journal. Yep. So the question is, does it fall, fall into a more sort of academic study of religion approach, or does it 
sort of fall in, there's a lot that we need to do based on your definition to, to have conversations between Christian communities about how that shapes this larger um, image of what Christianity is globally. So do you see that as the first agenda over? I, you know, this is a very good question, David, because what you're actually pushing to is how do you prevent the world Christianity that I see is flourishing at local levels from being contained, sometimes contaminated, by all of us, I'm including myself, um, who actually like to categorize things and talk about them in different places, all for certain agendas of how we want to describe world Christianity. You know? um, and, and this is really a problem. As you know, the, the, I can't think of another department anywhere in the world apart from the US and UK that deals with world Christianity, you know? Except that I think in India now, we're, we're getting chairs of Christianity. But this whole idea of, of, of world Christianity and uh, we, together with the power and the knowledge that we can actually generate, being responsible for defining the field is really a problem. And, and I think that we'll have to actually break those, uh, 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 you know, the, the ways in which we do this. I, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that it will have to be interdisciplinary. We need the Bible people, we need the history people, we need the theology people, we need the religions people. Uh, all of them actually need to be. And, and I think that one thing that we haven't taken seriously is also economics. We just need to actually be more... Because even, you know, I'm reading, uh, I've read Ran uh, Sane uh, very carefully. Um, he's, he's, he's very interested in lifting up, for example, the joys and, and uh, the, the success, the growth, all of that, for example, in African Christianity. Very rarely does he talk about, except the persecuted ones, which actually, again, is this whole Islam, Christianity, the, the lament of actually what's happening with structural poverty. Uh, I, I think that's important that we actually bring it uh, together and see what we can do together because, uh, in a sense, we're entrenched with people in communities, you know. And, and I think we can do it. So my sense of its future really arises from what else we can do to unearth what, in fact, is the movement, the dynamic, the current, and the wisdom that actually we can get from these communities. And I'm saying, including the communities that, in fact, we live among. So I've, I've, I've you know, I, I found that, you know, this is my eighth year here. For six years, I was getting my, my, my fix by going into India and spending a few times coming back and using the stories. And I realized that's not world Christianity. That's an old idea of world Christianity. World Christianity is when I can actually be embedded in every local community to see what actually is happening to the embrace of the gospel and the forms of flourishing that actually happens in spite of the fact that the world basically is stamping on communities like that, you know, treading on that. Hi, yeah, thank you for this and for the conversation yesterday. I, I was, um, I'm really helped by your description of these two strands of post-colonial mission that you see in the literature and in practices. And um, I have to say, as someone who's studying mission practices of North American churches, your description of the two anti-heroes of this first strand of mission ring very true. They're both central in the sermon and Sunday school lesson in my field site last week. So I was like, yes, this is exactly what I see. Well, so my, my question is actually, what are the anti-heroes of the second strand of post-colonial mission? that you see, the strand that is 
um, humanization of the world without Christianization. Um, do you see, I mean, how, how does that strand imagine its others? Um, I, I think the, the anti-hero for them is uh, evangelical Christianity. Conversion. Uh, the, the, the idea, of, that's why, for example, the, the, most of these communities, at least the second one, very comfortable with mission, missional, missionizing, uh, all of that. But you bring evangelists and they won't know what to do with it. So it's this, it, it, in one sense, they are uh, 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 influenced so much with, by a secular and this is the argument, for example, a lot of Sane's work. That in fact, the influence is enlightenment-based, the, uh, the, the, the victory of reason over everything else. So I think that they are probably the anti-heroes. Yes? Would you say, would you see um, non-religious and slash or secular, maybe, I don't want to conflate those two necessarily, but non-religious projects like global health, economic development, um, human rights, as operating within that rank, realm of humanization without Christianization? I mean, would you see those projects as part of that or no, unless they're actually self-defined. See, I'm actually drawing, and that's why I actually uh, gave you an introduction of, of the Missio Day and what is involved and the claiming of mission, uh, reclaiming of mission to be something that in fact drives people um, and it drives people in different ways. So I, that's a different ball game altogether. Uh, large international development agencies, uh, what drives them, um, I've not gotten to that at all. I, I'm just dealing with this as being one arena of discourse under post-colonial and mission. Uh, within uh, world Christianity. I've been holding back. I've got a question. <laughs> um, I'm curious about, you've been back in D.C. and at Wesley for six or seven years, and I've learned a couple of things from you. I know D.C. is like Atlanta, an African-American um, majority city in many ways. Also, Wesley has 30, 35%, I think, of African-American students. I'm really curious how that engagement with African-American students or the community um, has helped you, um, you know, rethink uh, what world Christianity is in a local manner. I mean, you've talked about this a little bit, but I'm, I guess I'm looking for a particular exemplification with your students or with your community in, in D.C. Um, uh my, my role in DC, uh, in, in, uh, uh, particularly Wesley, is uh, primarily to interpret the role of Christianity as missional with great respect for the validity of other religious traditions and secular traditions. So that's one of the things that we work with. Now that's a, that's, that's a very interesting journey because I myself actually have evolved through that process. You know, you can already see, I mean, I have a, you know, a very strong leftist liberal stand that's, uh, uh, you know, and because most of the arguments against the evangelicals was in our house with my dad, 
um, I bring this to bear and it comes out rather easily. But one of the things that's happened really at Wesley is, is, is to understand my own commitment to the particularity of Jesus Christ in the gospel, which uh, I didn't need to account for in much of what I did in my writing. So I think what is happening is, is a sense of, of trying to live uh, with this struggle, which is, uh, you know, I, I usually tell my students, the struggle is how can one be uh, uh, passionately Christian and yet compassionately interreligious? How, how does one actually frame this um, and, and, and try and live with this? And I told you already, a much larger understanding of, of the Trinity has allowed me to do this. Now, my, most of my students are not convinced, but it, it works for me at least, you know. And, and so this, but through this discourse and, and what goes uh, through much of what I was saying as well is this, this mediation between self and other, who we actually can easily identify as the other, who we take for granted as the self, not realizing but these categories uh, uh, inhabit each other in a sense, you know. And so through our struggles to actually suddenly make the other much more familiar, that which they thought of as wild is suddenly more tame, uh, and the surprises that happen within this classroom, particularly with religion, what one can learn from the other without actually ceasing to be oneself, all of this happens uh, within the classroom. Um, the, the, again, uh, it's, it, it's really across the board because we have very conservative uh, white students, we have very conservative Korean students, we have very conservative African-American students. And all of them actually are on this journey and, and the trust that we place in each other is that all of us will be mutually accountable and vulnerable to each other. But the other aspect which is working with uh, 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 global poverty and theology, that's something again which we've just started, I just had a course that we co-taught with an African-American colleague. Um, and that's, that's really what I would see if we can make this part of a practicum, if we can actually get uh, uh, people involved that work with homeless people, or even if we can do a Bible study which has people from outside their own comfort zone, I think this is something that we will work. My sense is that unless we uh, think about uh, the, the church and mission in the U.S., uh, involved with local issues of poverty. Um, I think that uh, uh, we really have very little to show with our involvement with global issues. You know, I think both of them should be held together. Um, and and uh, we haven't done anything in, in particular, but as, as I look at my role in Wesley, that's something that I'd like to pick up too. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.